First Peter chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. We'll read verses 9 to 12, but we're actually probably going to dig in most to verses 9 and 10. Uh, it's going to be on the screen for you if you don't have a copy in front of you so you can follow along with us. But our text this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. The Apostle Peter writes these words. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, last fall, back in September, we launched into a series of sermons from the book of 1 Peter, and we began to work our way kind of systematically through that book together. We kind of broke from that at the end of November when we entered into the season of Advent, had a couple of standalone messages early this year, and now we're diving back into 1 Peter as we want to finish it out by the end of this spring, as we continue to work through it. And where we find ourselves picking back up is in the middle of chapter 2. I'll give you a little context to where we are in the book and why we're here and why the name Sojourners for the title of the series. One of the big ideas that comes out of Peter's letter to the early church is this idea that Christians who are living here in this world uh, belong to another world. While this is our, our temporary home, our permanent home is with God. In fact, one day God will come to renew and restore all of this creation. And before he comes to renew and restore all this creation, when we pass from this life, we will go to be with him and return with him to rule and heal all that he has made. But until then, we're living in this world, longing for another world. And so we're exiles, he calls us early in the book, in 1 Peter chapter 1, in the very introduction. Again, in this text that we just read together, he calls us as aliens and strangers or sojourners and exiles. Now, a sojourner is someone who lives in a particular land, though they don't have permanent citizenship in that land. They may have a green card, a resident alien status for that particular land in which they are living. And so you can, you can be an immigrant to a particular place and you can move in full scale, adopt the culture and customs of that place. You can be a tourist in a particular place uh, where you kind of walk around snapping photos, posting them to Instagram and Facebook and tweeting them out. Or you can be a resident alien in a particular place. So you still retain the citizenship of your home country while you live and reside in another and Peter says, we as Christians are like resident aliens here in this world. So while our citizenship, Paul says in Philippians, is in heaven, our, where we're living now is in this country, longing for another one. And so that's one of the big themes from the book of 1 Peter. And so that's why we entitled the series Sojourners. Sojourners. And as we pick back up in the text here in the middle of chapter 2, um, I thought maybe a story from uh, C.S. Lewis, I always find him very helpful, uh, would help us kind of get back into the frame of mind of what Peter is saying to us. At the end of C.S. Lewis' fifth installment in the Chronicles of Narnia, it's called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. At the end of that movie, uh, there are several characters who, over the course of the series, have been, have been built, okay? Uh, one is named Caspian. He's a prince, uh, actually now the king of Narnia. Uh, you've, got, uh, you've got Edmund and Lucy, who are these two children who have come from... Um, our world into Narnia on several occasions and had adventures and encountered Aslan, the great lion king, 
Right? And then you have Reepicheep, who's this little mouse. Right? He's a valiant warrior. Right? He's got a little fencing sword. Um, and so he's a valiant warrior who's fought in many battles across the realm of Narnia. And as they stand on the beach with Aslan, the ocean off to one side and this great wall of water reaching up on the other. They're having this conversation with Aslan and Aslan informs Lucy and Edmund that they would not return to Narnia, but they must learn to know him by another name in their world. And Lewis meant by that Jesus, okay? Um, but to Reepicheep, all right, Reepicheep is standing there and Aslan says, on the other side of this wall of water is my country. It's my country. And Reepicheep, this little mouse, looks up to this great lion and he says, I've longed to set my eyes upon your country all of my life. All of my life, I've longed to see Aslan's country. And he says, I've had many adventures in this world. I've traveled all across the realm of Narnia and had many adventures in this world and I've experienced the heights of joy in this world. He says, but all the adventures that I've had and all the joy that I've experienced has not quenched the longing and the desire that I have to set my eyes upon your country. He takes off his hat and he kind of bends his little mouse knee. And he says, and if you, though I'm one who is unworthy, to set my eyes and set foot in your country if you would allow me but to see it. And Aslan looks at him, this great Lion King, and says, my country was made for noble hearts like yours. Noble hearts that recognize they are unworthy to see Aslan's country, but must fall surely on his grace to be able to see it. But what captured my attention when I first saw that scene as it unfolded uh, in, in the cinematic depiction of Lewis's novel was this is that Reepicheep says, listen, I've had a great time in this land, in this realm, in Narnia. I've had all kinds of adventures. I've traveled to all the corners of the realm. I've fought in many battles. I've experienced great joys, but nothing that I've tasted in this world has quenched my thirst to see Aslan's country. And that's exactly what Peter is describing the church in 1 Peter. Saying, listen, it's not that we don't have joys and heights in this world. It's not that we don't experience lows and depths in this world. It's not that we don't have adventures in this world. It's not that we're a part, not, not a part of seeing God's kingdom advanced in this world. But in the midst of all of that, in the midst of all the great things like marriage and child rearing, in the midst of all the great things like promotions and raises, in the midst of all the great things like caring for the poor, in the midst of all these great things, these adventures and quests that we've given our lives to and all the joys that we've tasted in the midst of all of this, Peter says, if for true Christians, none of that quenches the longing to see Aslan's country. Because that's where our true citizenship lies. That's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. That's what Peter is, is drilling down on in this book. And he comes to a section in the middle of chapter 2 where he begins to kind of mine and dig at our identity. Okay, who are these people who long for Aslan's country? No matter what they've tasted in this world, no matter what they've seen in this world, no matter how good it's been for them here, they're still wanting something more. There's still a longing and a thirst and a desire to see his, where do they come from and who are they? That's what Peter begins to drill down into in the text that we're in this morning. And so we're going to dig in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 to take a look at who is the church. Because listen, this particular text gives me great hope for Redeemer. 
I don't have a whole lot of hope when I look in the mirror, okay? I don't have a whole lot of hope when I stand on the stage and look out at you, no offense. We're not a particularly impressive lot. I don't have a whole lot of hope when I look in the mirror or off of this stage, but I have a great deal of hope when I look at this text. These people who are longing and waiting for something that this world cannot offer them. Who are they? Where do they come from? But not only who are they, but if we understand what Peter says about our identity, it will create certain activity in our lives. And in fact, I think what Peter says here is if we understand who we are, then the church, the church will be the most receptive and inclusive, the most secure, the most hospitable, the most compassionate and accessible, and the most distinct people on the face of the earth. So I, get a, I have a lot of hope for Redeemer when I look at this text. So let's dive in and see what Peter has to say about who we are and what implications that has for how we are to live as we wait. Right? We live in this country, but we long for our true country. Right? First thing he says is this, if we understood who we were, then the church would be the most receptive and inclusive group of folks on the face of the planet. In chapter 2, verse 9, listen to what Peter has to say. He says, but you are a chosen race. You are a chosen race. He says the church, as he's speaking to the church, this collection of Gentiles who's come from all types of ethnicities, all types of races, all kinds of people, all different family backgrounds. He looks at them and he says, you are a chosen race. He says the church itself is a new kind of people. It's a new race of people. It's a new family of people. Out of all the peoples, all the kinds, all the races, all the families on the face of the earth. The church is a new kind. The church is a new family. The church is a new people out of all the kinds, peoples, and families who have ever lived. Have ever lived. This is an incredible statement for Peter to make. You, to all these Gentiles who come from various backgrounds, have had all kinds of different experiences, live on different sides of the tracks, so to speak. It says, you are a chosen race. Now listen, this was predicted by Isaiah hundreds of years earlier. In Isaiah chapter 19 and verses 22 to 25, listen to what Isaiah has to say about a day that was on the horizon in his time. Listen to what he says in verse 22 of chapter 19 of Isaiah. He says, And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord, and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. And then in verse 24, he says, And in that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth. Whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Isaiah sees a day on the horizon, as God reveals to him, a day in which you'd have the Egyptians and the Assyrians, who were once enemies of Israel, who are now coming together to worship alongside of Israel. So people who are nationally and ethnically Egyptian, people who are nationally and ethnically Assyrian, people who are nationally and ethnically Israel would come together and worship God alongside of one another. 
Isaiah sees, foresees this hundreds of years before Peter writes this text. And around the same time that Peter's writing this, John has a vision. And he records it in Revelation chapter 9 as he peers into the throne room of heaven. And this is what he sees. He sees all these angelic hosts and beings surrounding the throne of God. And as they sing and praise and worship to the great king. This is what they sing in Revelation 5, 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open it, its seal. Speaking of the lamb who was slain. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. See, what Isaiah foresaw in chapter 19, John sees becoming a reality in Revelation. And Peter says is happening right now. Where? In the church. In the church. What Isaiah was foreseeing, what John was witnessing around the throne, and what Peter is saying to the church is that in the church, in the church, all the races and classes of people in the world come underneath one roof. And they worship alongside of each other and they serve Jesus together. See, what they are saying is this is that if the church really understood this, we'd be the most inclusive people on the face of the earth because we understand that we're not related by relational or by, by, by racial stock, but by someone who gave himself as a redemptive sacrifice. We're not related by our blood, but by the blood of another who gave himself for us, who was slain to ransom people from every tribe and every language and every nation and every people so that the church, the church is a people of all peoples, a race of all races, a kind of all kinds, come underneath one roof together. And this gives me great hope for our church, for Redeemer. Because this day has dawned, the day that Isaiah foresaw, the day that as John witnesses this in the, around the throne of heaven, and as Peter writes, this day has dawned and has dawned in the church. And if we really understood this, listen, if we really understood our identity as a chosen race, if we really understood it and lived it and believed it, then all the walls that divide and segregate people outside the church would come collapsing down in here. They would collapse down in here. And so the result of that would look something like this. It would look like, if we really believe this, Redeemer would be a place where you would have divorced single mothers and young newlywed couples who are bound together, even though one has never experienced the heartache of loss that the other has, but they are bound together in Christ. If we really believe this, then Redeemer would be a place where folks in their 40s and 50s would be bound together with folks in their 20s and 30s because age classifications are no longer the primary identifier for who we are in our identity. If we really believe this, then Redeemer would, would be a place where recovering addicts are bound together with people who've never had a sip of alcohol in their life. If we really believe this, then Redeemer would be a place where retail and food service hourly employees are bound together with corporate executives because it's not our vocation that defines us any longer, but it's Jesus who has ransomed us by his blood. If we really believe this, if we really believe that we are a chosen race, then Redeemer will be a place where folks with PhDs and GEDs sit at the table together. 
that we wouldn't be fractured and fragmented by socioeconomic class. We wouldn't be fractured and fragmented by educational backgrounds. We wouldn't be fractured and fragmented by earning potentials. If we really believed that we were a chosen race, we'd be the most inclusive people on the face of the earth. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you live that? I had a guy visit uh, several weeks back. Um, he was in town visiting family. He came to the church and he looked around and he said, man, I'm just so encouraged. He was like, man, you guys have folks here who are you know, African-American. You got folks here who have, look like Indian descent, Hispanic individuals, you know, white males. Right? All these folks under one roof together. Like, what, what are you guys doing to create this multicultural dynamic? I'm like, I don't know. We open the Bible and talk about Jesus. And there are people who come, right? And it's like, that, that's it. That's what binds us together as a church. That's what should bind every church together. That we are a chosen race. A race of all races, a kind of all kinds, a people of all peoples. And if we really believe that, then this place would be incredibly inclusive. And relationally, you'd be engaging with people who are not like you and people that you may not even like. <laughs> but you're bound together to them because of Christ's blood. These people who are waiting for us, living in this country, longing for their true country, are most inclusive people on the face of the earth, the chosen race. Notice what else he says, though. Not only be the most inclusive, but also the most secure people on the face of the earth. The church wouldn't be filled with folks who are constantly struggling with their insecurities if we really believed what Peter says about our identity here. Look at what he says at the end of that particular uh, verse 9 that we just read together. He says, the church is God's possession, a people for God's own possession. And the language that Peter uses here comes out of Exodus 19. In, verses, in verse 5, where Moses, God through Moses writes to his people and says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, but out of all the earth I've chosen you to be my treasured possession, my prized possession, my priceless possession. Now listen, do you guys have something like that in your life? you have something that's priceless to you, that's irreplaceable? Something perhaps that you would risk your life to, 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 to save and you would give your life to rescue if necessary. Listen, if I woke up tonight in my home and the smoke alarms were going off and my, my, the rooms were filling with smoke and I could touch the door handles and feel the heat on the other side of the door. Listen, there are several things in that, that, in that home that I would want to rescue and I would give my life to rescue. And one of them is the woman who sleeps, shares the bed with me. Right, my wife, and the other two are the children that God has blessed us with through this union. That I would give my life to make sure that they got out. That I would risk my life to save them. Right? Some of you have possessions like that. Whether you have kids or a spouse or not, you have possessions like that. But one of the things that makes things priceless to us, one of the things that makes things so valuable to us, is because there's a part of us that's been pressed into them. Right? A part of us has been pressed into that particular furniture piece that you built. Or a part of you that's been pressed into that family heirloom that's been passed down from generation to generation. Or a part of you that's been pressed into all those files in that cabinet that's sitting in the guest room. <laughs> a part of you or your labor, your work, your investment has been pressed into that. 
And listen, the, one of the reasons I would go after my kids is because they, there's a part of me in them. There's a part of me in them. We share DNA. And I love them. So I would go after them to rescue them. And what Peter says here in Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2 and what Moses, God says through Moses in Exodus chapter 19 is this. Listen, there's a, there, all of us as humanity have been created in God's image. His image has been pressed and stamped into us. And so what does God do? What does God do when the house starts to burn down? He doesn't just risk his life to rescue. He gives his life to rescue us. His treasured possession, priceless, willing to risk everything at all cost to rescue exactly what Peter is talking about here and exactly what Moses is talking about in the Old Testament as well. You look at it and you go, man, every man, woman, and child has been created in the image of God, so why us? Why are we God's treasured possession, right? It sounds so elitist to say that, doesn't it? It sounds like we're up here and everyone else in humanity is kind of down here. Why? Why? Here's what you have to understand is that nowhere in the scriptures does, does God talk about us being a choice people, right? Like a people who have kind of reached this particular plateau or this level of spirituality so that we would merit God's choice of us. Nowhere in scripture does it speak that way, that we are a choice people, kind of like USDA choice meat, right? The pick of the litter. No, almost everywhere else in scripture, we're like the runts of the litter, Right? Like the meat that's been, that's been spoiled is kind of like seven days old sitting out there without refrigeration or salt and it's got worms in it now. We're not a choice people. We're a chosen people. And God has made us his treasured possession out of all the rest of the folks on the face of the earth. But why has he done that? There's a very telling text in Deuteronomy chapter 7. A very telling text where Moses writes these words. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So out of everyone else, God has set his affection on you. And listen to what he says next in verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping his oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. See, what Moses says is this. God chooses you because he loves you. Why does God love you? It's the most beautiful circular argument in all the world. God loves you because he loves you. <laughs> he loves you because he loves you. Do you see what that means? He loves you not because you've performed to a particular criteria or status. He loves you not because you've been better than most. He loves you not because you've climbed a particular, up to a particular level on rungs of a ladder. He doesn't love you for anything within you. He loves you because he loves you. His image has been pressed into you. He wants to rescue those that are his own and claim them for himself. His treasured possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. Just because he loves. Now listen, if you and I understand that, if we believe that, that we are God's treasured possession, that he didn't choose us because of our performance, but rather he performed everything for us to be his, 
If we really believe that, listen, we'd be the most secure people on the face of the earth. And here's what would happen. All of your insecurities, if you thought about this long enough, the fact that God chose you because he loves you and he loves you because he loves you. Circular reasoning, I get it, but it's beautiful circular reasoning. He loves you just because he loves you. If you, if you meditated on that long enough and you radiated your heart with that long enough, here's what you would come to understand is that all your insecurities surrounding your performance, you would begin to see those as irrational. It rationally don't make sense to be insecure about my performance if God has chosen me because of his performance, not mine. So listen, those of you who have insecurities about your, the job that you're doing as a mother or a father, you begin to realize those things are irrational. Listen, even if your ki- all your kids' snacks aren't, aren't organic, okay? Even if you feed them a processed goldfish every once in a while, Right? Even if you're not at home baking 24-7 to make you know, fresh, organic, field-produced food for your family to eat. God didn't choose me because I'm a great mom. He loves me because he loves me. So my insecurities about being a great mom or being a great dad and provider for the family. Right, those insecurities, you begin to realize those are irrational. They don't make sense. They don't stand up to reason because God loves me because I love me. Now he doesn't love me because I did something. All your insecurities will be irrational. This means you can handle criticism without it crushing you. Because most of the criticism that you and I receive in life, right, typically most some of it, there's some of it that's true and some of it that's kind of, you know, kind of sift through it a little bit and filter through it and kind of filter it out. Some of it's, but, but lots of times when people are critical, you know, sometimes it's all completely false. Sometimes it's completely true, but most of that's like 2% on either side. <laughs> but in the middle, in the middle, there's like the other, you know, 96% of that criticism we receive that there's some truth and some validity to it and some that you just kind of dismiss and filter out. But listen, you'd be able to receive criticism in a way that is constructive without it crushing you because it's not dependent upon you. God's reception of you isn't dependent on your performance. So you wouldn't be so insecure when people criticize you. You wouldn't be so insecure in your vocation and your performance for you as an employee or as an employer. I wouldn't be so insecure when I look in the mirror about my job that I'm doing as a pastor. And so when people leave the church, it wouldn't crush me. I wouldn't struggle with it as much as I do sometimes. And pull the veil back for you a little bit. If we really believe that God loves us because he loves us, then all our insecurities we'd realize are irrational and we'd be the most secure people on the face of the earth because we wouldn't need something from someone else. I had a friend of mine, I heard him say last year, his name is JR, he said, when the opinion of the one who matters most matters most to you, then the opinions of everyone else lose their grip. If you knew that you were God's treasured possession, you'd be the most secure person on the face of the earth. Third, third, not only would we be secure and not only would we be uh, inclusive, but we'd also be incredibly accessible to people. Peter calls us a royal priesthood. He calls us a royal priesthood. The language he uses here is similar to Exodus 19.6. And let's be clear, Peter is not, uh, where Moses talks about being a kingdom of priests in Israel. Let's be clear, he's not talking about an office of priests that we would all like go in, become clergy and become priests in some office that we would hold in the church. He's saying, no, 
No, what has happened because of Christ and his high priesthood, okay, because of his, his being our high priest, is that we are all priests alongside of him. Underneath, his, he's the high priest, and we're all priests in his priesthood, right? And what that means is this, is that what Jesus has done for us, he's made us into this priesthood. He's the high priest, but what priests had in the Old Testament was they had access to God. They had access to God. Right, so they went before God on behalf of the people and they brought offerings and sacrifices and they prayed prayers. They offered worship on behalf of the people. They had access to God. They were the ones who adorned themselves in the, the holy garments and went in behind the curtain into the holy of holies. But whenever Jesus shows up and Jesus is crucified, at the moment in which he breathes his last, God tears the curtain that hung in the temple and he tears it from top to the bottom. So in other words, the curtain that separated the presence of God from his people has now been rent. It's now been torn. It's now been brought down so that God's people have access to him. Not a particular class of people amongst God's people have access to him, but all of God's people now have access to him. In other words, we're no longer on the outside and shut out, but what God has done in Christ is he's brought us in. He's brought us in and given us access. And listen, if you and I understood that, if we understood that what we have in Christ as his people, these people who are living in this country longing for Aslan's country, if, if, we, if we understood that, that God has given us access to himself, and that we would, be, we would avail ourselves of that access. And we would come before him on our knees. And we would bring him petitions and praises. We would bring him adoration and intercession we would pray for ourselves and we would pray for others because we've been given this access. But not only did priests in the Old Testament have access to God, but they were also accessible to the people. In fact, when you see their garments described in Exodus 28, on their breast piece, which sat about this size, it sat right over their hearts and on that were inscribed the names of the sons of Israel, the tribes, the people of Israel were inscribed on their heart, over their heart. And so they would be accessible to the people and engage with the people, have a priestly ministry among the people, but then they would go in before God and offer sacrifices and offerings. Listen, if we really understood the reality of this priesthood, then you and I would be the most accessible people on the face of the earth. Listen, this thing right here in your hand, right, it can do one of two things for you. It can either help you screen people out of your life or it can help you let people in. In fact, I remember the first time that I, I, I had an iPhone and they went to like visual voicemail where you can now see who had called you and left you a voicemail. And the person who was describing to me visual voicemail said, hey, look, listen, now you can go in and look and see whose phone calls you want to return. <laughs> right before you even listen to the message. You don't even have to waste time listening to the message if you see somebody on there that you don't want to speak to. See, these devices... These devices, they can either help us screen people out of our lives or they can help us let them in. See, some of you get those texts, don't you? And you get those phone calls and you get those voicemails. You get those Facebook messages from people who you know need something. They need something. It doesn't always come at the most convenient hour either, does it? <laughs> 
that need something. And here's the question. Are you going to screen them out? Or as a priest, and as Jesus, your high priest, giving you access to God, not only will you get on your knees before him for them and intercede for them, but will you turn and extend a hand to them and be accessible to them to know what's going on, to know what to say when you come before him? If we understood our identity, we'd be the most accessible people on the face of the earth. And it would free us from that constant treadmill of trying to get into other circles because we recognize we've already been let into the ultimate one. See, some of us spend our lives, we spend our lives trying to get in with those people. In high schools with the popular kids, right? In college with maybe with those who made better grades than we did so we could kind of learn from them and how they studied. Or those who partied a lot so we could be invited to those parties. And when we get out of college, right, when we get into a vocation, we want to learn from this network of people who have been above us and beyond us and they can teach us all the tricks of the trade of our vocation. Right? We're all constantly trying to get into another circle, another ring of people. C.S. Lewis beautifully in an essay uh, or lecture delivered at King's College in 1944 he called The Inner Ring. He talks about how we're constantly trying to get into these circles or trying to get into these networks of people. We're trying to get into these relationships. We're trying to get into these people who can benefit us, the people who are in the know. Some of us feel that pull and that weight. Let me tell you why you feel that pull in that way, why you're constantly trying to get into that next ring or that next network or that next circle. Here's why. All of that, all of that desire that you feel that rises up within you as you try and move from ring and circle to network is this. It's ultimately a deep-seated weight that you feel because you've been shut out of Eden. There was a door that was closed So you keep trying to get into these other doors. But when that door gets reopened through Christ and you walk into the presence of God, all of a sudden getting into that group or that network or those relationships, man, it's not, doesn't determine who I am anymore. I don't have to long and pant after that. And because I begin to have access to God, man, I want to be accessible to people and bring them along, intercede for them, serve them. Are you that way? Are you secure? Are you accessible? Are you inclusive? And finally, he says, be a holy nation. A holy nation. The word that he uses there to describe a holy nation, that word literally is ethnos. It's, a, it's a, like an ethnic group or a culture. You see, what Peter is talking about here is not that Christianity and the church is a subculture amongst a larger culture, but what Christianity is is a counterculture amongst another larger cultures. See, I don't know about you, but I've got certain things that I enjoy doing. I enjoy running whenever I'm not hurt. I enjoy fishing when it's not cold. Okay, so those are two things that I enjoy doing. But if you get to know other fishermen or you get to know other runners, what you're going to see very early on is that there's a particular subculture within those contexts, right? With all these fishermen, they've got their lingo and they've got their equipment and they've got you know, their, all their accessories that go along with that and the stores that they shop at. There's a little subculture built around the fishing industry. And then the runners as well, they've got their own lingo, right? right? You start talking to them, they sound like they're speaking a foreign language sometimes and they start talking about fartlicks and they start talking about tempos and they start talking about all these other things. You're like, what in the world is all that stuff, right? Their own little lingo and their own accessories and their own shops that they shop at. So you get these two subcultures. And most of us think, right, that coming into the church is kind of like moving from one subculture to another. And we just kind of add this other Christian subculture to our lives. But in reality, becoming a Christian 
taking the step of faith in Christ, being a part of the church, is not like moving from one subculture to another. It's like moving from Russia to Mexico or from the U.S. to Brazil. It's like changing cultures because cultures, not subcultures, but cultures have a whole different way of viewing economics and relationships and hospitality. And everything gets filtered through the lens of that culture. You're not just kind of coming into another subculture and learning their lingo. So here's what that means, is that if the church understood its identity, if Redeemer understood our identity as a holy nation, we'd be the most distinct people on the face of the earth. Because we're not just the Christian subculture that gathers at Highview Learning Center every Sunday morning at 1030 for the Christian show. (laughs) But we begin to process everything in our life through the lens of this new culture. In the same way as if you move to Argentina or Brazil or Mexico or China or Russia, you would walk into a whole different cultural context. That's what becoming a Christian is. That's what getting, becoming connected in a church looks like. Being the church looks like. Thinking of ourselves not as a subculture, but a counterculture. As a distinct from all the other folks on the face of the earth. Not for, so that we can just kind of pat ourselves on the back. Because God is holy, we are holy. So we think about everything differently. Let me give you one example because we're running out of time. Typical. One example, right? We would think of one of the things that we would see differently, one of the things that we would approach differently, one of the things that we would handle differently than the rest of the world because Christianity isn't just kind of the, the, the most of us think of, of like our lives, if we think of our lives like a file drawer, right? we think of Christianity as another file we put in the drawer. We do the Christian thing on Sunday mornings. In reality, what Christianity is is in a whole new drawer in which all the other files of your life go and they fit a little bit differently in that drawer than they do in the others, who you were before you came to faith in Christ. See, one of the things that means, let me just push on this a little bit because we're about to relaunch into life groups, okay? One of the things that means is this, is you begin to think about community differently than the rest of the world. Most of the world thinks of community as this group of individuals with whom I have affinity. I like to do the same things. We like to fish. We like to hunt. We like to run, whatever else it is. But what biblical community is, is a community bound together by the blood of Christ. Bound together by the blood of Christ. And in our Western individualistic culture, in our Western individualistic culture, where we take these things and we screen people out of our lives and we have a filtered version of ourselves that we put out there on the internet through these things, in our Western individualistic culture, we don't want to let people in. Not really, right? We just want to have people around us, but we don't want to let people in. It's okay to be around, but not in. See, in, 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 the way that, in the way that our culture thinks of community, it's, we want to be around people, we want to have people see inside. But biblically, biblically, there's this call to transparency to where not only do you have people around you, but people who are seeing inside of you. So when you take a step into community around other people who are bound together by the blood of Christ, there are people who know decisions that you're making and choices that you're faced with. You may even at some point as you, as you grow in intimacy with those folks in that community, they begin to open up financial decisions to those people. Something about buying this house, what do you guys think? Something about buying this car, what do you guys think? Right, to where there's people who actually know the real issues that you're wrestling with and your heart's struggling with. Listen, I just you know, committed this sin last week. 
And it wouldn't just be this general generic thing, but you could talk about how, man, listen, some of you, pornography, pornography has such a grip on your life right now because you've never told anybody about it. Some of you, your spending habits have such a grip on your life because you've never discussed them with anyone outside of yourself. Because you live in a Western individualistic culture that wants people around but not in. See, if we were a holy nation, our community would look different than a social club. Peter says you would be distinct, you'd be secure, you'd be inclusive, and you'd be accessible if you really understood who you were as a church. If I really understood who I was as a Christian. And then he says, the reason God has done this, what's behind all of this, God, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for God's own possession, what's behind all of this is so that you and I, who are in Christ, would proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That you would be like a child who once lived in an orphanage, separated from father and family, and the greatest king, most powerful king, the wealthiest king on the face of the earth came in and said, you, you. And he brought you home, set you at the table with a great feast where all you had eaten before was ramen noodles. There's a great feast seated before you. He says, you are mine. I brought you into my family. And listen, if you'd been given access to all the resources of this great king and you'd never known father or family before until you met him, and he was nothing but gracious and generous and kind and compassionate and loving, and yet disciplined you whenever you erred and went astray out of his love to bring you back. And he was just. You saw all these moral excellencies within this great king who had brought you into his family. You wouldn't go, I'm just going to be a nice person to all the other people who aren't very nice. You would walk around now with a song in your heart, with words on your lips where there was no music or melody before. If you understood, you're his treasured possession, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, then it would, you would erupt in proclaiming with your mouth the excellencies of the one who has swooped, swept you up, who's grabbed a hold of you, who's adopted you, who's brought you in. This morning as we receive the Lord's table together, it's a beautiful picture, right? Of races, classes, backgrounds. That what binds us together is his broken body and his shed blood. And so as we come to the table this morning, we're coming to remember our identity, who we are. And man, my hope for us as a church, like I said last week, we'd have intimacy with Christ and we'd recognize our identity and we'd be a people who proclaim his excellencies. So as we take the table together and as we sing together, as we close this service out, 
My hope is that there's a song in your heart where there was no music or melody before. And maybe you would lift your voice to declare the praises and the glories and the excellencies of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, today we're thankful for your mercy that we did not merit, that we did not deserve or earn, but you graciously gave. God, may we respond to it now in ways that are fitting to the gift. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.